This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Karen Brooks, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you so much, Cheryl. Wonderful to be here. Yeah, no, I'm really looking forward to our chat. Um, the book is called The Good Wife of Bath. Karen is a best-selling author of 14 historical fiction, fantasy, young adult and non-fiction, including The Locksmith's Daughter and The Chocolate Maker's Wife. She is also an academic with a PhD in English and cultural studies, as well as a social commentator and columnist. Karen's latest book, which we just mentioned, The Good Wife of Bath, which is what we're talking about today, is a feminist retelling of Geoffrey Chaucer's wife of Bath from the Canterbury Tales. Congratulations, Karen. It's really just such a well-written, well-researched book. And uh, I've got a lot of questions around this genre that I'd like to discuss with you today. Firstly, tell us a little bit about how you came to writing. Right. Well, thank you for a start. Um, I think I accidentally fell into writing fiction. I, as you said, I was an academic for, you know, 25 years and you do a particular type of writing there and it's a very limited audience and it's, you know, there's rules and regulations to follow. And I was also teaching literature and media and loving all the sort of storytelling that was going on there. And the beauty of being a columnist, I was a columnist for 18 years with one particular newspaper. Um, you what were you are writing t- about? Oh, everything from The Simpsons to... Um, politicians to feminism to uh, gender issues in society. So they were quite, uh, I guess, what was it someone called me? They they said that I had a way of explaining complex things easily and um, so I could deal with quite meaty topics but in a hopefully accessible way and I loved doing that. So, But it still didn't nurture or satisfy the creative part of me. And I think I was getting a bit miserable as an academic, to be blunt, and um, though I loved the teaching, it was the politics, the stuff that went on behind the scenes with the academics and the infighting, and I just turned to writing. And one of my very dearest friends was a writer and she'd always, a very successful writer, and she'd always been encouraging me. And she set such a high benchmark, you just think you can never meet it. But I, I had a go and I was, my first manuscript, we'll never see no one will ever be allowed to look at it. It was terrible. Um, and believe it or not, it was about vampires, sort of, just when bloody Twilight and all that came out. So it was like I missed that boat. But then I wrote something completely different. I wrote for YA and I was really fortunate a publisher picked it up. So that started me on this wonderful journey, you know, and it just I found How my- did you get published? Well, Sarah, my girlfriend, read the manuscript. And Sarah she, Douglas. Yeah, Sarah Douglas, sorry. Yeah, and she got yeah. me in touch with her agent and um, who took me on mm-hmm. and basically sent it to Lothian at the time and lovely Helen Chamberlain. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, yeah, yeah Helen, Helen was, is 
fabulous. And they took my first, I think, six books, YA books. So, yeah, but then I moved into the adult realm. And, and why? I, why? Um, I think because, you know, there's this misunderstanding a lot of the time that it's really easy to write for YA and that adult writing's harder. It's not that at all. In fact, I think that it's really difficult to write for young audiences. They're so discerning and clever and, and have high expectations. And um, in some ways it is easier to write for adults. But I don't know, I think I just wanted to deal with some much media topics in a more direct way. And, and that sort of demanded uh, or, or required an adult audience. So, but it was a slow shift. I think the fantasy trilogy I wrote, The Curse of the Bond Riders, was for older YA or adult. You know, it was across genres and across readership. So then I segued really nicely into just historical fiction and adult. The, the audience came with the genre virtually. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because a lot of publishers try very hard not to to keep their authors writing what they know and they really don't like uh, change all that much. And I've heard that a lot from a lot of authors that, you know, if you're trying to change your genre, that can be quite challenging um, to even get your publisher over the line. Did you have that? Was that an experience that you had? Um, no, because I changed publisher. <laughs> Oh, okay. There you go. So you're probably right. And you are pigeonholed. And you are. Funny, I was talking about pigeonholing today. And it's not just publishers that do it. I was thinking about how much the media pigeonhole yes. people, too. And like you can't, they set uh, fences around you, boundaries. And, you know, we talk about glass ceilings and that, but it happens to people in any profession where you try to change. It's like you're not allowed to, or you're not allowed to diversify. You've got to remain in your pigeonhole. And, um, you're damned if you do and damned if you don't try and move out of it. It's really sad. But, no, I, I changed agent and publisher and I've, I've had three different publishers or is it four? No, three. And, um, yeah, and really loving where I am now. They're just so supportive and wonderful. And I'm very happy with historical fiction though too. But I think if I tried to, you know, like do a Pamela Hart, Pamela Freeman, Pamela Hart, and segue into another genre, I think they'd be really supportive of that too. I know my age you can would, give but them, I'm not can... ready to get Okay, you can give your publisher a plug if you like. It's Harlequin HarperCollins, so we love HQ. Them. Yeah, yeah, they're absolutely the most wonderful, wonderful people. And not only that, the authors that are part of their stable are so supportive of each other. I have not been involved with such an amazing bunch of people, the, the authors and the readership too. And, um, no, I feel very, very blessed. I'm not religious. I'm used that term in the very broad sense of the word, very, very blessed to be with them. I agree. And I think I've had a little bit of experience in working with authors in the US, just tiny, where I've been over there and I've recorded some podcasts, various interviews. And it's not that they're not supportive of each other, but there's no network for them to connect. So if I met an author in New York on one block and then another author the next day on the next block, I'd say, oh, well, do you know Christopher Bolan? Or do you, no, no. Did you know that Christopher, and they don't have festivals as such and they don't don't have that, well, at the time, they didn't have that social media connection. And I thought they're very isolated here. Whereas in Australia, I know so many groups of writers. And honestly, if I mention a writer like you, you've done that today, they will always tell me about another good writer. It's not common, you know, but I think it's common amongst Australian writers. Michael Robotham, I don't, do you know him? I know Michael very well. He's a superstar. Oh, he is, and I did not know. Okay, so this is many years ago, and I think what he'd already broken the international market and was doing really well. By then I hadn't discovered the crime genre. Believe you me, I'm now a huge crime fan. But 
I was at a dinner event on the Gold Coast called, I think it was called Literati, and the idea was that two authors would sit at a table where people paid to be with us and you did entree at one table, then you shifted for main meal, then you shifted for dessert. I'm not really good in those social situations. I get really, really anxious and I'm driven to get there and I, I arrived a little bit late. And there's this really smiley, nice man sitting at my table and all these other women who had big hair and tanned and glittering with jewels. I thought, oh, that's where they get the arty from, you know, the, the literati, the glitterati. Anyway, he, it was Michael Robotham. I sat down and one of the women, they'd already been drinking a bit, said to me, uh, and who are you? And I said, oh, hi, I'm Karen Brooks. Uh, never heard of you. And turned their back on me oh. and <laughs> to fawn all over Michael. Okay, Michael and I were together for each table and I got to know him better and I just watched how he interacted with people and how kind and charming he was anyway. At the end of the night, all the authors that were at the other tables were having our debrief and Michael says, tell them what happened to you. And I said, oh, my God, I sat down and these women were just really rude and I didn't know what to do or say. And he said, Karen, what you don't know is 15 minutes earlier I'd got there and they asked me who I was and they said, never heard of you. <laughs> I don't think that's entirely true. I think they were there to be with Michael, but that's how kind he was to put mm. me, this totally unknown, nothing author, at her ease. And he was just so kind and lovely to everyone. Yeah, yeah. I think that, that so many Australian writers have got that. And I really appreciate it. Do you know, and I'm, I'm going to tell you this story. This podcast is going to be a podcast of stories, but well, that's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally <laughs> but, I mean, here I am yesterday in lockdown, right? And the buzzer goes. And I thought, I'm not expecting anything today. I wonder if that's, you know, and we're not allowed to visit each other. So the courier said, I'll leave it downstairs. So I thought, oh, it must be some books. You know, one of the publishers must set, set me some books. And I go down and it's a box of chocolate-coated strawberries <gasps> from an author in Western Australia, Perth, Tess Woods, out of the blue. Do you know Tess? Yeah. I know of her. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, who, you know, is lovely and I know her. I mean, she's adorable. But, you know, for her to even give me a thought that day, I, I was so blown away with this gorgeous note. I cried in the lift all the way back up. I just thought, I, honestly, I'm so lucky to work in this industry. Most experiences I have are fantastic. I'm exactly the same. And it's funny, I didn't know that about America. And I do have an American and British mm. publisher and I have an American agent. And why you were saying, that I thought, yeah, I don't know any other authors in their no. style or who my agent has either. So it had never occurred to me that this doesn't happen everywhere. But now that you say it, yes, I, I, I can actually say my experience with the overseas market is completely different. Yeah, that's right. But the readers are wonderful. I have oh, to say, okay. the overseas readers are just beautiful mm. and, and really reach out and go out of their way. And the bloggers too. Mm. Um, mind you, Australian bloggers and bookstagrammers are amazing. Isn't it? Aren't they amazing? Our whole better reading community um, oh. is really about the readers. It's just about the readers and hearing their opinion. And people often say, you know, you guys are so good at recommending books. Well, we just start the conversation. They then pick it up. I feel that this community is, they're the recommenders. They're the ones that yeah. start interacting with the story and start telling me how wonderful it is. And, you know, very often we've read something and we're like, okay, we just put it out there. And sometimes the love that comes back for that author, we're like, oh, hang on a second. <laughs> you know, they really teach us a lot as well, which I think is incredibly important to hear reader feedback. And I think this is where social media has been so valuable that people people like you and people like me, we can get first-hand responses. It's fantastic. Oh, truly, you can. And sometimes they, as, as an author, it can be quite confronting. Mm -hmm. But 
I always appreciate it if, it, if it's couched in, you know, yeah. terms and it's not ad hominem attack. I think it's really important to hear the good and the bad. Mm. I mean, I mostly hear good. Yeah, you do. <laughs> yeah, but, but, um, it, 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 the, the bad can be just as valuable in some ways. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. I agree. I want to talk about the genre because, I mean, over the years I've, I've come across criticism and people have written me very thoughtful emails about women's commercial fiction and a lot of people say to me, you know, like when you have a wife in the title, that's sexist, you know, that's – and I've thought about it quite a lot and I'm really not an expert in the area. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to speak to Karen about that. <laughs> <laughs> so talk to me about, about feminism and commercial fiction. A couple of things here. Feminism is a really interesting, the way it's been transformed into something quite nasty, derogatory. It's become the new F word. It's really saddening for me as someone who embraced feminism and taught it at university to see how people shun it now and turn away from it and are almost ashamed to admit that they embrace it or they benefited from it even. And the fact is it's not just women who benefited from feminism but uh, men as well. And the way I see it is that it's about equality and equity and it's about not raising women above men or at the expense of men but putting us back where we always should have been and, and in a position we have denied for centuries. And the more I research historical fiction, and realise how appalling women were treated, um, the infantilization of women, the denial of rights, the subjugation, how it was written into religious law, into law, into social practice. And, yes, we've come a long way, but, my God, you realise when you see something, you read about something that happened in the 1300s and see it's still happening today, you realise how far we still have to come. But I think it is important that we re-educate a lot of the younger generations about feminism because why would, say, in heterosexual relationships, a man want to be the sole provider or want to bear all that responsibility when he has a perfectly, potentially perfectly capable female who can be there alongside him and taking equal responsibility and sharing the load, whether it be as parents, whether it be in the workplace, whether it be in life, in friendship, whatever, I, I'm constantly astonished that we don't continue to see all the positives that feminism brought, apart from things like equal pay and voting rights, which are just the big ticket items, but it's the little emotional and psychological and social gains. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I was speaking to Isabella Allende recently, very lucky to be speaking to her, and you know that she put out that uh, very short um, novel but I asked her what feminism meant to her and she said it's everything. It's not just men and women. It's everything that doesn't fit in the patriarchy. It's all of us who don't. So it's men, it's women, it's, you know, um, gay people, trans people, all people that don't fit into the traditional patriarchy. Going back to genre and historical fiction, largely the genre is concentrating on figures historical female figures. And my view on it often is, well, they've never been heard before. They've never been, their stories have never been told before because history for a long time was told from a male perspective. Yeah, and and arguably it still is. Well, our understanding of history is still predominantly a masculine or male understanding. And you're absolutely right. And that's, I love that HQ Harlequin um, Hub Collins did this great campaign, her story, Mm. her story rather than his and, you know, it's embedded in the word, isn't it, the, the patriarchal sort of emphasis. But the thing is it's we have been invisible, we have been silenced, and yet we've always been present. And just because we're not in recorded history doesn't mean women didn't live it and experience it. And alongside the men, above the men, and, again, I have to reiterate, it's not about writing women's stories and denying men's role. It's just putting women back where they belong and saying, hey, we were there too. Wars were fought predominantly by men, but they were won because women picked up the pieces at home and kept things going. And again, whether it was in medieval times or whether it was in recent wars, that's the way it's always been. And there's been some wonderful novels written around that too. But you're right, a lot of historical fiction, well, A lot is from women's perspective, but I'm also thinking about all the ones that have written um, great historical fiction with male characters and reiterating all the, you know, the the great kings and rulers and politicians, you know. So we we, we have a lot. I, I find it extraordinary that people might think that women's fiction is sexist when all it's doing is trying to redress an imbalance that's existed for time immemorial. Yeah, because very often when I pick up a commercial fiction book and it's whatever the title is, and I think, oh, I didn't know he had a wife. I didn't know he had a partner that was probably doing all the work, probably supporting every. And then we get to hear about her and we learn about her and how important her role was in whatever success that that male had, but it's just never been told. Talk to me about how this story came to you. And because it's it's a mammoth project. Yeah, it was. It was a, a labour of love, I call it. A couple of things too. I'll, I'll go back to what you said too before I do that about wife being in the title and people being yes. confronted and thinking about that. What's so interesting about that, of course, sure, is that's a patriarchal term and it's positioning women within a, a, an order, a patriarchal order, as not as a woman or a female but as a wife and therefore owned as they were in those days, by the men. You know, they were treated like property. So when we see daughter or wife or any of those other terms, what it's actually doing is sort of situating the woman historically within an ongoing arc or narrative, you know, that's that's existed for a long time. So that's not sexist. That's actually being quite accurate and, and I guess, drawing attention to an imbalance again. Okay, so Good Wife of Bath. Well, I wrote a book called The Brewer's Tale, 
back in, I think it was published in 2014, and that's the story of a medieval female brewer. And halfway through the book, uh, a huge transformation happens, a catastrophe, and she ends up going to Southwark, which wasn't part of London officially then, but, but is now, of course, on the other side of the river. And she meets the Madam of a brothel. And I role modelled the Madam of the brothel on the wife of Bath because she always fascinated me. And she was only meant to be a really minor character in the book, but as is the way often, the characters themselves don't allow themselves to be minor and they say, oi, <laughs> you know, I'm here for the long ride. You're, you're, you're talking about me a bit more. And I ended up falling totally in love with the Wife of Bath character because what I did was I knew the poem really well, but I tried to imagine what happened to her beyond the poem. What would a woman who'd been married five times, was lusty and enjoyed her sex and bawdy and big-mouthed and had opinions about everything, what in those days could she have possibly done, you know, to stay independent and live a rich life? And I don't mean um, in terms of wealth. I mean in terms of how she lived it, her life experiences. And I thought, oh, she would have been a brothel owner. So that's how she came in the brewer's tale or what she was. But I fell in love with her so much. I thought, I've got to go back and write her story. I don't think anyone has ever told her story, apart from Chaucer, of course, who gives us the bare bones, sort of, in, in the Canterbury Tales. So it was always bubbling away at the back of my mind. And after I finished The Darkest Shore, which was a very dark book about probably one of the great last witch hunts in Scotland, and the academics say that that changed the laws in Scotland, what happened there, and that was such a harrowing book to research and write in so many ways. I thought I need something a bit lighter and I thought about Alison again, the wife of Bath, and thought, yep, time to tell this body um, tale. So that, that's how that came about. And I used the wife of Bath's prologue and tale from the Canterbury Tales and the prologue is where the wife tells her own story and we learn from that that she was married five times, the first at the age of 12, her first three husbands were considerably older than her. Her fourth one she married for love and regretted it deeply. <laughs> her fifth one was 20 years younger than her and she met him at the funeral of her fourth husband and he beat her up. He hit her so hard she lost her hearing in one ear but she gave as good as she got. And you suppose that they all lived happily ever after but, of course, the wife is on another pilgrimage when we hear this story and we presume then that her fifth husband is dead and she's on the hunt for a sixth. So this well-travelled, reasonably wealthy woman who is a great weaver, is great in bed, we know this because she tells us, <laughs> and is quite well-educated. She can argue with the best of the philosophers and the religious people in the group. I thought, well, what was her real story? She's either really likeable or really obnoxious, depending on how you read the prologue. And then she tells this wonderful tale about a knight who rapes a maid that's part of the queen of the kingdom's um, bedchamber and his punishment is to go off on a pilgrimage himself for a year and learn what women want. And that's his chance at redemption. And I won't say what happens because I reveal it in the book, but it's quite wonderful. How responsible do you feel, I know you're writing fiction, but how responsible do you feel to historical characters, you know, telling their story? Sure. I think that's a great question. I feel incredibly responsible. I feel yeah. like I owe it to them to be authentic to the era, authentic to what I know about the real character, but also any fictional ones I place beside them. I think you owe it to history. And, and, and not only that, um, it's so funny because some people say, oh, 
she's done a modern spin on on whatever, whichever of my books it is. I actually don't, and I try to stay really true to the time. The language sometimes you have to because you, you wouldn't be able to read it in the archaic language, but we tend to forget that women have always fought for their rights and fought for acknowledgement, and there's always been people who've tolerated uh, things that that we're much more tolerant, not enough, uh, much more tolerant about now, like um, cultural differences, like um, homosexuality, like uh, uh, different skin colours and things like that. Um, there's this idea that we're all racist and, and completely sexist and homophobic in the past, mostly, yeah, but not everybody. And the more I read history, the more I uncover these little stories or these fights in courts, in court roles and stuff like that, where people really did stand up for others. They were, you know, the early abolitionists and things like that. It was quite remarkable. And the tolerance of homosexuality came about because so many men practised it and hid it. And, like, there were things like molly houses around, which were where men went for sex with other men. And, and there were rulers who were, who were quite flamboyant homosexuals and it, it was tolerated to a degree. And but, it, but, again, but women, there have been men who have appreciated a woman being independent and um, speaking her voice. So, yeah, all that stuff's been around for a long time. So I'm authentic to them as well. But having said that, you also then have to put in the dreadful things that happen and the intolerances and the persecution and the subjugation. Wouldn't be authentic if you didn't. That was kind of part of my next question. When you're following a character like her, for instance, and you're with her and you're doing the research and you feel as though you know her so well and and you're going to tell her story as authentically as possible, but are there times when you find something, you discover something about that character and that you don't like and then you're in a quandary about which way you take it? Does that happen? Yeah, absolutely, and it particularly happened with the wife um, because if you read the way she tells her own story and the way she interacts with the other pilgrims on this journey to Canterbury, she can be really obnoxious and vain and boastful and all those things. She's a very flawed character and she openly admits that she manipulated her husbands by denying them sex, by um, complaining that they were having an affair when they clearly weren't and emotional blackmail was was her, her way of getting her own way. But you have to be true again, you know, I, there's nothing more boring than a perfect person, don't you think? No, oh, absolutely. The imperfection. Imperfections make them human. So she's an incredibly flawed character with a big heart. And I think we forgive a lot of people who, like the thing I value most about anybody is kindness. And you come to appreciate that more and more, I think, as you grow older. You know, the other stuff is irrelevant. It's it's how people treat others that that is paramount. And I could write all her flaws um, because in my mind, and I feel in the poem, she's ultimately really kind and it made it easy to address them. Beautiful. That is lovely and it's a lovely thing to say about a character. Karen Brooks, we're out of time. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you today. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Cheryl. I've really, really enjoyed it. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. 
All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.